if you want to make something, if you want to create certain things or compose them, you need certain ingredients, certain elements, certain, I guess, uh, yeah, certain elements. Let's just take water, for example, right? You can have two, you can have two hydrogen uh, atoms, but if you don't have one oxygen, you can't make water, right? Or iron. If you want to forge something with iron, well, what you need is iron ore, and you can heat it up, and it can become malleable, and you can shape it, and you've got an iron object. Or if you want to make it harder, and something maybe a little more defined, you can heat it up to the point where it's, it's completely liquid, and then pour it into a, a mold, and then it becomes, you know, cast iron. And it's very hard, but it's also very brittle, and it can break. If you want to make steel, though, you have to add carbon. And so it becomes harder and less breakable, but it has rust problems. So if you want to make stainless steel, you have to add chromium. So you need those, all those elements that are essential for the product or what you're looking to bring to fruition. So when we talk about the gospel, and by the gospel I mean the good news, that sinful mankind can be reconciled to a holy God, can be forgiven, he can give you eternal life, he can come to live in you, you become his adopted child, and so much more. There are two key elements or events or actions that we need to consider. First of all, it's the crucifixion. Jesus' death. Taking upon himself our debt to satisfy God's justice. And the second component is the resurrection. If you've noticed the songs we've been singing, we've been talking and singing about the resurrection and the death. Not only does this validate what Jesus said and claim that he did, but it is the life-giving power of the gospel and our salvation, and it gives us power to live the Christian life and for the gospel. And it guarantees the hope that we have in him as we put our faith in him. So we're going to continue this series that I've been preaching through as we closed out Luke, but there's more to take in here about the hope of the resurrection. And today I want to talk about the gospel and the resurrection and how those things come together. And so we're going to look at a classic chapter that's outside of the gospels but is very encouraging. And uh, so before we dive in, let me pray, and then we will look into God's Word today. So Lord Jesus, thank you that you are indeed alive. You are our Savior, and you give us life, and you give us hope. And so now, Lord Jesus, stir up your Holy Spirit among us, Give us eyes to see you for who you really are. Give us eyes to see the hope that you want to give our hearts. And Lord, give us grace to respond to you in faith. 
do your work in us. And if there's somebody that needs to put their faith in you today, would you use this time to draw him or her to yourself? Encourage your people and give us hope in what you've done, Lord Jesus, in your resurrection. And it's in your name I pray these things, Lord. Amen. Again, a classic passage. And many of you may have even dialed it into your mind. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're going to look at the first uh, 15 verses. And kids, if you're in a habit of writing in your Bible, you might want to write up there, the resurrection. Because that whole chapter is about that. It's all about that. And we're not going to get through all of it. And it's not my intention today. But the first thing I want to talk about today is that the resurrection is essential to the gospel. That the resurrection is essential to the gospel. So listen to these first four verses of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Now brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. And by this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you believed in vain. For I received what I pa- uh, for what I received, I passed on to you as a first importance, importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So as Paul is writing this letter to this church in Corinth, it's this letter to us even today, Paul is saying there are some key components when we talk about the gospel. And you need to hold firmly to it. And if you don't, you're missing the key components that make the gospel effective in your life to bring about salvation. The gospel is not a moral code for you to follow, although it has God's morality in it. It's not life principles or advice to follow, to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, although it is good life advice. But it is based on what Jesus has done. And I know I'm preaching to the choir. I know you guys already know that. But unless these elements are in, this is, these are the essential things, and everything else is in vain if you've jettisoned them. So he says, well, for what I received, I passed unto you as of first importance. Now, I'm going to stop there for a second, because this is important. Paul's saying, look, I received this. I didn't make this up. I didn't come to my own conclusions. I received this. I received this from the Lord Jesus. I received this from the other apostles. I received this from the church. And these are the things that we're going to, we're going to start push, uh, looking at. There's a uniformity here. And he's passing it on to his original um, context, the Corinthians. But some of us think, some scholars think, this is an early creed, okay? It's just something that was passed on, because remember, not everyone's literate. Not everyone can read. And so, and by the way, Bibles were not available for most people. (laughs) So we have to figure out a way for it to take in the truths of God's words. These statements are concise and they're compact. Number one. 
that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And that, number two, he was buried. Now, oftentimes, when we refer to the gospel, we tend to put our focus on Jesus' sacrifice, on his crucifixion. And Jesus himself commanded us to remember that, right? In communion, the Lord's Supper or, or the Eucharist, depending on your, your faith background. And we focus in on his betrayal, his suffering, his death on the cross being nailed to it, spear piercing his side, thorns, body, blood, and a new covenant being ushered in, right? All good things. We're talking about substitutionary atonement. Jesus takes upon himself the justice that you and I deserve. And then he extends to us his righteousness. And rightfully so, we should focus on this, right? Because a debt was owed. A debt was owed by us, and we could not pay it. We were stuck. Someone had to step in and intervene. And that someone was Jesus. And only he could do it. There was no other who could do it. There might have been others who had good intentions, but only Jesus, as the sinless Son of God, could step in there. But, here's where I'm going with this. If Jesus were only to be crucified and die and remain in the tomb, then the best we could say about Jesus, that he was a good or innocent man who was unjustly put to death. If you've been with us the last couple weeks, in, as we finished up of Luke, remember how the disciples respond. They are downcast, downtrodden. They have no categories for a dead Messiah. And if the end of the story ended with Jesus' death, most of those disciples would have gotten off the Jesus train. It's over. Done. We're going to go figure out what's next. And for us today, if Jesus only died and is still in the tomb, and is, you know, as noble as his sacrifice might be, the best we could say is that he had noble character. And more cynically, we might say he was pitiful. Because he was not able to deliver on the promise he made to rise from the dead. He overpromised. He couldn't deliver. And that doesn't give us a whole lot of confidence in what he said then, right? Especially when he makes comments like, hey, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Why would I want to do that? Look what happened to him. He's dead. I don't want to do that. And even the Apostle Paul in this same chapter, he's going to say this in verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. There's no proof that Jesus' atonement paid for your sins. But that's not the case, right? Let's continue on here. And that he was raised on the third day. He was raised on the third day. Now remember, Jesus had told his disciples that he was going to do this. Luke 9, 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day 
raised to life. They just couldn't figure that out. Didn't make sense to them when, when he had not risen yet. They were despondent. But when he was risen, it changed everything. And by the way, point number four of this creed, according to the Scriptures. You see, Jesus wasn't adding something new. He wasn't bringing something to the table that wasn't already there in God's Word. An example would be Isaiah 53, 11. For after he has suffered he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. He will see the light of life. And he did. So again, with the crucifixion, we've got the payment for the gospel, for the salvation. With the resurrection, we have the power. We have the power. And the apostle Peter in his epistle, will say this in his opening comments. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in His great mercy. Now listen to this. He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. A new life a living hope. God is breathing spiritual life into us who have faith. Who put our faith in Jesus Christ. Again, through the resurrection. That power is being transferred to us and in us through His Holy Spirit. And we're going to speak more about that in the weeks to come. We also have an inheritance kept in heaven for us that can never perish, spoil, or fade. That's a future hope. That means that this life is not all there is. Actually, the best is yet to come. And we're going to talk more about that in the coming weeks. But right now, I just want to focus on this. Without the resurrection, there is no salvation. Because there is no gospel. It is this spiritual vitality that brings actual life to us. Because Jesus was risen from the dead... It transfers us from, from um, regeneration that is making us spiritually alive to resurrection where Jesus will transform our lowly bodies into those who are like His. Without the resurrection, there is no gospel. It is essential. Number two. Number two out of this passage. The resurrection is evidence of the gospel. Look at verses 5 through 8. And that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. Now, I'm going to convict myself already. I know we've been covering this territory in the last couple weeks. Okay? But here's why we're going over it again. First of all, it's in the Scripture. But number two, it's how we know the Gospel is true. It, what, it's what differentiates this from the rest of the messages that are out, the religious messages that are out there. 
It's what God has done. And it's the compelling evidence of those eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. And so, you know, he starts out with Cephas, which is actually Latin for Peter, which means stone or rock. He is one of Jesus' closest disciples, and he boasted, remember? Even if everyone goes away, they abandon you, Jesus, I'll be there even to the death. I'm ready to go to, to prison and death with you. But when push came to shove, he abandoned Jesus. In fact, he denies him that he even knows him. And in his last profession of I don't even know the man, as he calls down curses on himself, Jesus and, and Peter make eye contact, right? And it says he went away bitter and wept bitterly. And so Jesus is crucified. On the third day, rumors that he's risen from the dead. He goes to the tomb, finds strips on the ground, but no body. And then Jesus eventually reveals himself to him as the risen Christ. Now think about this. Great joy. Oh, I'm so glad you're alive, Jesus. I'm so glad that what you said is true. But great shame. Because I denied you. I didn't believe you. And I, when push came to shove, I saved my own hide. And Jesus confronts him and says, do you love me? And if you read about that in the chapter of 21 of the Gospel of John, it's a beautiful thing, but Peter is restored. And he's changed from a coward to the central spokesperson for the resurrection and the Gospel when, when the Holy Spirit falls. And he proclaims the Gospel and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he'll do that all of his days until he dies. And it wasn't a natural death. It was on a cross in Rome being crucified upside down because he believed he was not worthy to die as his Savior did. But he goes to his death proclaiming, Jesus is alive. And by the way, so will I. So will I. Then you've got the 12. In truth, it's 11. Because Judas is gone now. Actually, in truth, it's only 10 the first time because Thomas wasn't there. And Jesus shows up there behind locked doors, right? They're hiding. And Jesus says, peace be with you. I'm like, whoa, it's a ghost. <laughs> okay, peace be with you guys. Look at, my, look at my body. You can touch me. There's something to eat here, by the way. And we did that last week. And then, as we know, in, in uh, John 20, Thomas wasn't there the first time. And he says, unless I put my fingers in his hands and his feet, my hand in where his side, where the spear was, I won't believe. And so Jesus shows up graciously again. Hey, Thomas, here you go. Here's my hands, my feet, my side. My Lord and my God. These are the, the apostles, the sent ones of Jesus to go proclaim his resurrection and his gospel. And most of them 
I'll die a painful death, just as Peter did. Save for John, who dies in exile, claiming that Jesus is alive. And then more than 500 at the same time. If you look at the book of Acts, Jesus appears over about 40 days, resurrected, and he appears to about 500 at the same time. These are the early believers of the church of Jerusalem. And when Paul writes this, this letter to the Corinthians, it's about 20 years later. It's about 53, 54 A.D. He says, hey, 500 people saw Jesus at the same time. Now, if they were deceived, it was a heck of a smoke and mirrors show. But that's not the case. That's not the case. But these people would experience persecution in Jerusalem by a guy named Paul of Tarsus and others. And most of them would live a pretty hard life following this resurrected Jesus. But none of them recanted. And then we get to an- another, another witness. And he's different. His name is James. And this is not James the son of Zebedee. This is James, the son of Joseph and Mary. This is Jesus' half-brother, James, who doesn't believe Jesus when he starts his ministry. In fact, they make fun of him and say, hey, Jesus, why don't you go up to the festival in in John chapter 7 so that people can see you? But they didn't believe him, right? Then after Jesus appears to him, he's a change of opinion. He's a change of heart. And we see in first, uh, excuse me, Acts chapter 1, verse 14, that he is with the apostles as they're waiting for the Holy Spirit to fall. As we know the rest of the story of James, he becomes kind of the leader of the church in Jerusalem after Peter leaves and goes on the road. And he writes the book of James, which is a great book about living practically out our faith. But he goes from a skeptical sibling, a hostile witness, if you will, to a devoted disciple. And he dies being stoned to death because he believes that Jesus is alive. Paul notes all the apostles, others who saw Jesus' death, and then him being risen from the dead. We're not sure exactly who these people are. Maybe they're people like Joseph or Matthias who were candidates to replace Judas. You read about that at the end of Acts chapter 1. Maybe it was Barnabas, Philip, maybe the, you know, the first deacon, Stephen. But again, none of these people had an easy life. They faced opposition, persecution, and death because Jesus was alive. And then last of all, one abnormally born, and that's where Paul's talking about himself. That's me. That's me. And if you know Paul's story, he starts out as a guy named Saul. Saul of Tarsus. A Pharisee. A zealot. In his mind, a stormtrooper for the law, the Old Testament law. And he is convinced that Jesus is a false messiah, 
And then in destroying God's church, he's doing God's will. And Jesus has to literally apprehend him on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. He is a hostile witness, at least at the beginning, until he realizes he's been fighting God himself all along. That he's been fighting God's Messiah and God's people. And he calls himself as one abnormally born because his road to faith is not one that is what most of us have experienced, right? Most of us experience putting our faith in Jesus because somebody told us. Somebody told us about Jesus, told us the gospel. Maybe we, you know, did some Bible study and like, my goodness, Beth is right. Jesus is the Messiah. That's right. That's how most of us came to faith. <laughs> Jesus can downloads himself right into Paul. He blinds him on a road, blinded by the light, literally, and reveals himself. This is not the normal experience. But here's the thing. That's what Saul needed. That's what Saul needed to be reached. And you know what? Jesus is still doing that today. You know where he's doing it? With Muslims. In a country where they're trying to wall the gospel out, Jesus is breaking through and revealing himself in visions and dreams. And I can't explain it. I don't understand it fully. But Jesus is reaching the Muslim world. That doesn't mean we, can't, we don't need to still keep bringing the message to that world. But Jesus is breaking through. He's not going to be deterred by human uh, means to try and, and bring, bring a barrier to that. So Jesus is appearing to an enemy. And maybe some of the Muslims in this world feel like they're enemies of Jesus and the cross. But he calls Saul and changes him to be his chosen instrument. A chosen instrument to do something that the other apostles really aren't equipped to do. That is to take the gospel, not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles, and to kings. Because God has uniquely equipped Paul, or Saul of Tarsus, to do that. And if you know the story of Paul, He's effective, but he will go to his death, being beheaded by Nero, proclaiming that Jesus is alive. What's so compelling about Paul, or Saul, is what was the change? My answer is that Jesus revealed himself as the resurrected Christ. I don't have another good answer. This is compelling, you know, compelling evidence for me. Because there are so many in this world that say, come on, Nathan, do you believe that? This is just written by men. I mean, you know, maybe Jesus really did exist and he was a good teacher, but, you know, these things were made up later and, you know, they're just written by men. No. 
That's not true. These are actual eyewitnesses who were there. We have, we have documents that go all the way back almost to the first century to prove this. And if you say it's conspiracy or it's made up, just listen to this. How many of you in this room know who Chuck Colson is? Most of us older folks know. You see, I remember in second grade watching the White House proceedings on television in my class when Richard Nixon and his administration were being tried for a break-in at the Watergate uh, Hotel. And Chuck Colson was one of Richard Nixon's cabinet. I think he was a general counsel. And he was called the hatchet man on on that cabinet because he was the guy who would go and do the dirty work, make things happen. But an interesting thing was happening in Chuck's life at that time. There was a crisis because he was caught up with what was happening with the, the Nixon administration. But the second thing that was happening was Jesus was breaking into his life and drawing him to himself, even in the midst of this crisis. And so he eventually goes to jail. And God does some things in his life. Eventually, he founds a ministry called Prison Fellowship that's still at work today and does some amazing things. Maybe you may have contributed to it through a ministry called Angel Tree, but that's not my point. He wrote a book called Loving God, and this is how he he responds to thinking about these issues, okay? So he says this, So if one is to assail the historicity of the resurrection and therefore the deity of Christ, one must conclude that there was a conspiracy. A cover-up, if you will, by 11 men with the complicity of up to 500 others. To subscribe to this argument, one must also be ready to believe that each disciple was willing to be ostracized by friends and family, live in daily fear of death, endure prisons, live penniless and hungry, sacrifice family, be tortured without mercy, and ultimately die. All without ever once renouncing that Jesus had risen from the dead. So this is why the Watergate experience is so instructive for me. If John Dean, who was also on the, on the uh, cabinet for Richard Nixon, and the rest of us uh, we're, we're so panic-stricken, not by the prospect of beatings and execution, but by political disgrace and possible prison terms, one can ima- only imagine or speculate the emotions of the disciples. Unlike the men in the White House, the disciples were powerless people, abandoned by their leader, homeless in a conquered land. Yet they clung tenaciously to their to their enormously offensive story that their leader had risen from his ignoble death and was alive and was the Lord. The Washington cover-up reveals, I think, the true nature of humanity. None of the memoirs suggest that anyone went to the prosecutor's office out of such noble notions as putting the Constitution above the president or bringing the rascals to justice or even moral indignation. Instead, the writings of those involved are consistent recitations of the frailty of man. Even political zealots at the pinnacle of power 
will save their own necks in, in the crunch, though, they may be, though it may be at the, the expense of the one they pr- profess to serve zealously. says, look, I've been a part of a conspiracy. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. You see, the resurrection is evidence of the gospel. Because these men made an unrelenting profession to their death. And it's also evidence of the gospel because of the lives, how they were changed. Because remember, they were cowering and hiding. And all of a sudden they become bold unto death. They are eyewitnesses. Last of all, the resurrection is evidence of the grace of the gospel. The resurrection is the evidence of the grace of the gospel. Let's finish this, these uh, next few verses out, 9 through 11. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. That would be a great thing for you to tell yourself in the morning as you look in the mirror. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach. And this is what you believe. See, Paul is forever haunted by the fact that he persecuted the church. That he persecuted Jesus. You know, in Acts, when Jesus reveals himself, he says, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? Jesus doesn't say, why do you persecute my people? He says, why do you persecute me? When you do this to my people, you are doing it to me. He had persecuted the Savior, the Messiah. He was blinded by ignorance, blinded by the sin of pride. Who's ever heard of a crucified Messiah? How can that be true? I'm a Pharisee. I know the Scriptures. If it were true, I could see it. He was blinded. And what a sinking feeling when he he finally realized, I was wrong. I was wrong. And everything I wanted to do, be right with God, be right with where he's going, I just discovered I've been a blasphemer all along. What a horrible, horrible feeling. But here's the beauty. Here's the beauty of the gospel. You see, it's not for those who deserve it, folks. It's not for those who are looking in the right place. Paul wasn't. It's not for those who are sincere. It's for those who realize they have nothing to offer. I got nothing. To offer to God for my salvation. But on the flip side, know that Jesus has everything.
to offer. In paying. And the power that He gives. To open your eyes, to forgive your sin, to give you new life, and transform you. And it's all by grace. Unmerited favor. Not what you have done. Not what you have earned. Not what you have worked for. Or not what you should be penalized for. It's all by grace. Verse 10. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. What a great truth. And it's amazing what grace can do. And as Paul's emptied of all of his self-righteousness, a Hebrew among Hebrews, a Pharisee among Pharisees, he was advanced beyond those who were older than him. When he's emptied of all that, he becomes the apostle of grace. An amazing transformation. And you know what's amazing? He takes this message to people, to the Gentiles, who most of his Jews think that God has abandoned. Who most of the Jews think that God has cursed them and left them alone. And is just going to bring judgment at the end of the day. He gets to be the ambassador, the apostle of grace. And by the way, he... God used him to write about two-thirds of our New Testament. Praise God. This enemy of the cross now becomes its greatest defender. And it's by his grace. The Apostle Paul will say this in his letter to Timothy. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ came into the world to save sinners. Okay? He came to save sinners. Not folks that have their act together. People that know they need a Savior. And then he says, of whom I am the worst. I am the worst. But for this very reason, I was shown mercy. (laughs) So that in me, the worst of sinners... Christ might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Here's the modern translation and application. If he can do it for me, he can do it for you. Because I am the worst of sinners. I was persecuting the church. I was persecuting Jesus. I was his enemy. And he rescued me. By revealing himself as a resurrected Christ. And you know what? When you know you've received great grace, there's something within you that makes you grateful. And it can't help but change you. And make you want to tell others. And then it says in verse 10, And his grace to me was not without effect. I worked harder than all of them, Yet not I, but the grace of God who is with me. I love that. That was Paul's story, right? That was Chuck Colson's story. 
You know what Chuck Colson was? He was a political hitman. And God changed him into someone who brought hope and grace into the prison cells where people have no hope and experience no grace. And he blessed the whole Christian world, I believe, by his transformation. And I know he's done that in many of you. Maybe at one point you were shaking your fist at Jesus and sticking out your tongue. And then Jesus got a hold of you somehow and turned you around and is using you. And maybe it's not as a grand scale of, of Colson or Paul, but he's still using you. Because you realize that you have received grace. By the grace of God, you are who you are. Not because God is lucky to have you on his team, because God <laughs> takes us even in our weakness and uses us for his glory. And maybe you're out there saying, hey, Pastor, that sounds good, but that's, that's too good to be true because you don't know what I've done. You don't know the heinous things that I've done. And you're right, but God does. And he still says, no, come. All those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This grace is for the worst of sinners. But here's the blessing. When you know you're a sinner, you're in a place to receive it. You see, so many people are going around this world saying, well, I don't need a Savior. Yeah, you do, whether you know it or not. And that was Paul's problem. He didn't know it. but you are not beyond the reach of His grace. You are not beyond the reach of His atonement. You are not beyond the reach of His resurrection. He is for you. To as many as received Him, even those who believe in His name, that is putting your faith in all that He's done, His life, death, and resurrection, to them He gave the right to become the children of God. And remember, folks, it's not about you. It's not about what you can do. It's about what He can do. As you say, okay, Jesus, come in and do it. I receive you. And if that's you today, maybe this is your, your point where His resurrection power starts to change you and give you life. You see, in the resurrections, we see the power for the gospel. In the resurrection, we see the proof of the gospel. And in the resurrection, we see the patient provision. The patient provision that God offers all of us. And we're going to talk more and more about the hope of the resurrected Christ. Because he's not this dead guy who lives back in history. He is the risen Christ who wants to live his life in me and through me, in you, and through you. He wants to do in you what you cannot do yourself. And that's part of the hope of the resurrection. So stay tuned. I hope you're excited about this. I am. Because it's not about that I'm so eloquent. It's that Jesus is a great Savior. And He's still at work at you and me. So let me pray, and Bobby, will you and the worship team come and close us? So Lord Jesus, you have risen from the dead.
and you are at work. So Lord, if there's somebody today who needs to put their faith in you, would you give them grace to respond? Would you open their eyes just like you did with Paul or Saul so many years ago? To see that they need you, that they are stuck without you, but that you want to come and give them life because of what you've done on the cross for them and because of what you've done in rising from the dead. And if that's you, I'd just like you to pray in your heart along with me. Jesus, I know that I am lost without you. I have no hope to stand before a holy God because I am sinful. But I thank you for coming for me, for dying for me on the cross and taking upon yourself my penalty that I deserved. And I thank you for rising from the dead, Lord Jesus. And now, Jesus, I put my faith in you and what you've done in living a perfect life I couldn't live, in dying and paying a debt I couldn't pay, and then rising from the dead and conquering a foe I can't conquer. Come and make your home in my heart. Change me, make me your child, and give me the hope in life that only comes from you. To as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. Receive that today. And for the rest of us, Lord, would you help us to see, help us to see the life you want to give us, even as you are the resurrected Christ and are alive and well. So I thank you for this time to look into your word. I thank you for this time to rejoice in who you are. And would this hope continue throughout the week as we serve you. And Lord Jesus, in your name I pray these things. Amen.